Let's start with a prayer. So if you could all bow your heads, that'd be great. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Mockingbird. Thank you for the blessing of being parents for some of us. And thank you for the ultimate gift of being your children for all of us. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Father, may we see Jesus in him alone. Forgive the one who teaches, for her sins are many. Amen. Welcome to Grace in Parenting. I have no advice. <laughs> I'm surprised you came. We're, we're actually going to watch the movie Frozen for an hour. So. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. My name is Sarah Condon. Um, I am mother to Annie, who is five months old, and mother to Neil, who is almost four, and wife to Josh. And I'm a priest at St. Martin's Church here in Houston. This talk is about being in the trenches of parenting, and it is ultimately about Jesus, the only one who gives us grace and rescues us from ourselves. First, I want to talk about parenting advice. There's so much of it. Um, a simple uh, Google search will yield you several different choices, and these are all official parenting practices. There's instinctive parenting, attachment parenting, helicopter parenting, authoritative parenting, and my personal favorite, permissive parenting. <laughs> sounds super scary. Um, and if you're a modern family fan, you may be familiar with the family patriarch's parenting philosophy. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you parenting. Hey. Hey. Boy. <clears throat> Things with your mom got pretty intense down there, huh? All like East Coast, West Coast, you feel me? Act like a parent, talk like a peer. I call it parenting. I learned it from my own dad who used to walk into my room and say, What's up, sweat hog? It's funny, but it could really exist. These parenting approaches are everywhere, and as a mother, I know I am always running to this information. Which is why a few months ago, when one of my friends posted about a hot new parenting technique, I clicked. But this one was different. Perhaps my first warning should have been that it came from a blog called The Daddy Complex. <laughs> With that in mind, I've altered the language a little bit to make this family friendly. On his blog, this father proclaimed a new type of parenting technique that we will call CTHD Parenting. <laughs> <laughs> which is called Calm the Heck Down Parenting. And the genius of this new technique is that it is not actually for our kids, it's for us. Worried your friend's child has mastered the alphabet quicker than your child? Calm the heck down. Scared you're not imparting the wisdom your child will need to survive in school and beyond? Calm the heck down. Stress that your child exhibits behavior in public you find embarrassing? Calm the heck down. The author goes on to promise, using the CTHD method, you'll find the pressure lifted and realize your child loves you no matter what, even if they've yet to master the alphabet. You'll also learn that whether or not you're the best parent in the world, as long as you love your child, they'll think you are. And that's what matters. Plus, CTHD makes you immune to those who prey upon the fears of new parents. 
like pseudoscientists and parenting authors. But I have to say my most favorite part of the CTHD parenting technique is the author's two-step process. Step one, calm the heck down. Step two, there is no second step. <laughs> and while I found this completely hilarious, I actually think this dad blogger is really onto something. What if parenting advice is not about our kids? What if it's really about us? Children are walking embodiments of years of our collective decisions. Like no other thing on the planet, our kids and their behavior and appearance feel as though they have everything to do with who we are. I believe that in our brains, on some level, they actually are us. Out there in the world, peeing in the neighbor's grass, <laughs> being judged on our behalf. And this causes us anxiety, massive anxiety. Those crucial life moments when they cannot be quiet in church, or the everydayness when they cannot be quiet in the grocery store, or that time that you saw them push a classmate at school when they didn't know you were standing there. Not that I have a personal experience. Um, <laughs> these moments can be heartbreaking. It can feel like it's us out there being really loud jack wagons. I think there are two arenas where we see this anxiety play itself out in crystallized form, so I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about those. We see it in the public and in the religious spheres. So what do these two settings have in common? Both are places where we feel the law of judgment. In both of these settings, we live in the shoulds of our kids' behavior. One of my favorite sayings from AA is, don't should all over yourself. I think sometimes we should all over ourselves and our kids. In terms of judgment in the public sphere, no one captures this concept for me better than the humorist David Sedaris. If you haven't had the chance to listen to his Santa Land Diaries, then have I got the Christmas and October treat for you. <laughs> David Sedaris describes working as an elf at Macy's department store in New York City, and it's called Santa Land. As an elf in Macy's Santa Land, he spends an entire day shepherding children and their parents, all with the goal of getting that iconic photograph taken with Santa Claus himself. What is it like to look in on our world as parents of hurting children? Particularly around Christmas, that time of year when food and festiveness and fun collide into one season. He shares sweet stories about kids and poignant narratives about the tenderness of that time of year. And of course, as with a lot of David Sedaris' work, there's a lot of humor. But after the entire half-hour bet, he ends his summation of being an elf at Macy's Santa Land in this clip. It's a short but tough statement about being parents. And just as a note, it's, you're going to hear it. You're not going to see it. So. This evening I was sent to be a photo elf in house number two. The camera is hidden in the fireplace and I take the picture by pressing a button on the end of a cord. Most elves will hold up a stuffed animal over their fireplace and say, Look at my little animal friend and smile! Oftentimes the parent will settle the child on Santa's lap and then start grooming. I've seen mothers pull cans of hairspray from their pocketbooks and spray the child's hair as if Santa were a false prop made out of cement. Hairspray shoots into Santa's eyes and he winces in pain. Once a child starts crying, it's all over. The parents had planned to send these pictures as cards or store them away until the child is grown and can lie, claiming to remember the experience. 
Tonight I saw a woman slap and shake her crying child. She yelled, Rachel, get on that man's lap and smile or I'll give you something to cry about. Then she sat Rachel on Santa's lap and I took the picture, which supposedly means, on paper, that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be, that everything is snowy and wonderful. It's not about the child or Santa or Christmas or anything, but the parents' idea of a world they cannot make work for them. Your kids want to meet Santa. You have to stand in line with other parents whose kids want to meet Santa. And years later, you'll need a decent photo to prove to your kids that you loved them enough to meet Santa. <laughs> I'm getting anxious just talking about it. Sedaris tells us it's about the parents' idea of a world they cannot make work for them. Yikes. It's not an easy thing to hear or say. I think we want the best for our kids, but we identify ourselves so strongly with them, sometimes to the detriment of everyone. And to be clear, I think this identification with our children is totally normal. For the parents in the room, do you remember the first time you took your newborn in for the shots? And they held the baby, or you held the baby, and it felt like you were getting the shot. Um, I don't think this feeling ever goes away. I have a spiritual director who I've written about before that, that said to me after we had our son that having a child is like your heart walking around outside of your body. And I, I can't think of a more accurate description. I also want to address judgment and our identification with our kids in the other sphere of influence here in the church and in religion. Here we face the little laws of appropriate behavior alongside the big laws of God. Certainly, I feel this way because I am married to an Episcopal priest. So what my kid wears to church, or how loudly he yells, Hey, Daddy, at the communion rail, feels like it matters more. <laughs> but I'm not sure being a clergy family really makes this all that special. The more friends I talk to on the pews, the more I realize that church and our kids' spirituality is a whole separate arena for us to play out our control issues. We don't just worry about what other people will think of our kids at church. We worry about what God thinks of our kids. If we can just make our kids watch enough Veggie Tales, or if we can buy the right children's Bible, or if they can be nice enough to the pastor, then maybe we will feel closer to God. Maybe our kids can make up for our God problems. Maybe their devotion can fix ours. I do think part of this comes from that natural inclination we have as parents that our children would do better. I think we all have a sincere hope that our children would come to know just how much Jesus loves them. But there is a darker side to this longing. We know in theory that we cannot do anything to force our children to be closer to God, but that doesn't stop us from desperately trying. I think what is at play here is our human need to prove ourselves to God Almighty. And if you haven't spent a lot of time on the Mockingbird website, or this is your first conference, then you may have not heard our drumbeat. But the last thing theologically we humans can do is prove our worthiness for salvation. That's a failed project. And depending on my four-year-old spirituality to do that for me is kind of funny and also a little sad. There's a great scene in a very underrated Woody Allen movie called Radio Days. I don't know if you guys have a family movie, but in the family I grew up in, this is our family movie. I don't know what that says about us, but it's not good. Um, it's basically an autobiographical movie about Alan's childhood in Brighton Beach, New York. 
Alan grew up in the golden age of radio in Manhattan in the 1940s in a tight-knit Jewish family. So instead of being put in front of an episode of Power Rangers or Doc McStuffins, Woody Allen was put in front of radio shows, so he would listen to The Lone Ranger or The Masked Avenger. And he grew up as any good Jewish boy would have grown up in New York in the 1940s. Little Woody Allen attended Hebrew school at the local synagogue. In the scene you are about to see, Allen's character has decided to steal money from the Jewish National Fund so that he can buy, I'm practicing saying this, a masked Avenger secret compartment ring. He always hears about it on the radio. This would be like our kids lifting money out of the offering plate to buy a Hot Wheels car. In other words, this would be my worst nightmare. So in this clip, you can see how well this went over with the rabbi and his parents. This is my masked Avenger's secret compartment rig. It's very special to me. Now, basically, I was an honest kid. But there are some things in life that are just too compelling. That afternoon at Hebrew school, a scheme occurred to me. Next week, we are going to issue collection boxes. And each of you will be asked to go out in the street and collect funds for the promotion of a new state in Palestine. Hey, can you give to the Jewish National Fund and help us build a homeland in Palestine, please? Please? No? Hey, how about you? Can you give to the Jewish National Fund? Can you, can you help us build anything? Hey, how about... Right, can you? Can you? No? Give to the Jewish National Fund? Hey, can you give to... Hey, excuse me. Can you? Can you? Give to me, please. Thank you. Because we got enough here to get the Master Avenger rings and an ice cream soda. We're going to leave some for Palestine. Where's the leave anything for Palestine? It's all the way over in Egypt. This is sin. What if the rabbi catches us? Hey, you'll never find out. Besides, I can handle him. You sure? Positive. Dimes. I got four dimes. Manish. For that Jewish homeland used to buy this mass adventure ring? My heart is full of grief. It swells with anguish. He'll pay back every cent. Yep. Shut up. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. Mm. I, I say go to the beach, play in the sun, get some fresh air. No. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Masked Avenger. Uh, this is not good. This boy needs discipline. Radio. It's all right once in a while. Otherwise... It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Listening to the radio, these stories of foolishness and violence, this is no way for a boy to grow up. You speak the truth, my faithful Indian companion. Rabbi, you say my faithful Indian companion? He don't hit my son. What kind of a bringing is this? Look, look, mm. I'll hit him, but you don't hit him. I know better how to teach my children. I'll hit him. No, leave him alone. No, I'll hit him. Because you are too lenient. Oh, I'm lenient? What? That's lenient? That's lenient? I am a faithful Indian? Such an impertinence? Rabbi, I will teach him some manners. You and oh, that lady. radio. Think that's lenient? Oh, enough. You'll hurt the boy. So as an aside, my favorite part of this clip is how the rabbi goes, the radio is okay once in a while. <laughs> because I feel like it's like how we don't want our kids to watch Barney, but we watch like American Ninja Warrior. Um, he wants to justify it just a little bit. Um, I love this scene because I think there's so much happening. I think the little boy is doing what a lot of kids do, and I think the adults around him are freaking out. There's the rabbi who has the professional responsibility to make this boy religious, 
And the parents are there feeling the burden of having had their kid disrespect the synagogue and the rabbi and God. All of the adults feel as though they have failed. All three of them are anxious and scared. They must fix this kid for their own good, for his own good. And their self-judgment is palpable. And you know that their fears about what God must think of this boy are layered on top of everything else. They impose a should on themselves. We should get this kid right with the Lord, or we all go down with the seven-year-old. It's like an anxiety explosion. I can completely identify with the adults in this room. It's like they all want to yell at him, Why are you making us look so bad in front of each other? So I don't have a worldly fix for this, for the way that our kids make us feel um, in the public and religious settings. But I want to talk a little bit about that feeling that we have. I don't have a great answer. I'm not going to tell you what books to read. I don't know what mom blogs have the best advice. Honestly, I try to avoid those. Um, We're also not here to talk about kids and discipline. Uh, I don't know how long kids should stay in time out. I don't have an idea which behavior charts work. Based on my household, they work for about 48 hours. Um, What I'm trying to say is my oldest kid is almost four. So if your kid is older than that, then you should probably be giving me advice. What I want to do this morning is handle what it means to be us as parents and us as sin-sick sinners. Because that's a lot in and of itself. So I'd like to set the kids aside for a moment, if we can, and handle what it means to be parents and to be children of God. First, we all should go to therapy. (laughs) I'm sort of kidding, but I'm sort of serious. Um, I think therapy offers a great space for self-reflection. It helps us to examine our upbringings, how they can negatively or positively impact the way that we're raising our own children. But before we go any further down this trail, I'd like to show you a clip from the 1997 critically acclaimed film, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. (laughs) Here we get a glimpse into what this kind of therapy could look like and why we as parents need it. Dr. Evil, the villain of the movie, and his son are sitting in a group therapy session for fathers and sons with difficult relationships. We have some newcomers here today with us. Say hello to Scott and his father, Mr. Evil? Evil, actually. Dr. Evil. Hello, Dr. Evil. Hello, Hello, Scott. Scott. Hello, everybody. So, Scott, why don't we start with you? What brings you here with us today? Well, I just really met my dad for the first time five days ago. I was partially frozen his whole life. That is beautiful that you can admit to that. He comes back, and and now he wants me to take over the family business. But, Scott, who's going to take over the world when I die? Listen to the words he used. Who's going to take over the world when I die? Feels like that to some of us sometimes, doesn't it? (laughs) So, what do you want to do, Scott? I don't know. I was thinking I like animals. Maybe I'd be a vet. An evil vet? No. Maybe like work in a petting zoo. An evil petting zoo? You always do that! I just think like he hates me. I really think he wants to kill me. Now, Scott, 
We don't want to kill each other in here. We might say that we do sometimes, but we, we really don't. <laughs> Actually, the boy's quite astute. I really am trying to kill him, but so far, unsuccessfully. He's quite wily, like his old... <laughs> I think this is parenting neurosis and the reason we may need to go to therapy in a nutshell. We hoist our goals and visions onto our children. We hope that they will be exactly like us. Or we hope that they will be nothing like us. And I think going and spending some time with a therapist will help us sort this out. Just as a side note, I think this is a particular necessity if you grew up in a difficult household. Certainly, if there was abuse of any kind, you need to spend some time with a therapist. You're not locked into some sort of a, I have to parent just like my parents, inevitability. There is a way out, and sitting on a couch for a while, talking about your history and experience help. If the therapist is worth his or her salt, they will mostly listen. They will not give you answers. Therapy is about realizing who you are and you get to tell that story. So while therapy is truly helpful, I also want to talk about the church's way for us to go deeper. From a uniquely Christian perspective, the church offers us the opportunity to give our confessions. And by confession, I certainly include the confession many of us make every Sunday in our churches. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. But I also mean the kind of confession that we make to a pastor or priest in private. If you're in the kind of church that uses the Book of Common Prayer, I highly recommend taking a look at the service for confession. It is simple. It's just like the movies. You go in and the priest says, or you go in and you tell the priest you want to do confession, and the priest will say to you, or, sorry, and you'll say to the priest, bless me for I have sinned. The priest offers a prayer, and then you give them your worst. And after it is over, no matter how bad the stuff was you said, even if you saw the pastor flinch a few times when you told him that stuff about college, <laughs> they will always say a prayer for you that goes something like this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who offered himself to be sacrificed for us to the Father, and who conferred power on his church to forgive sins, absolve you through my ministry by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and restore you in the perfect peace of the church. In confession, we are able to tell our story through our sin. We lay it all bare, and a fellow Christian reminds us that we are, in fact, forgiven. So you come in and you say who you think you are, a person identified by your sins, and the priest reminds you of who you really are, a person who is a sinner redeemed by Christ. You may be thinking, this sounds lovely. What does it have to do with me being a parent? I think therapy and confession are critical tools in our lives as parents, and not because they teach us how to keep our kids in line, because they will not do that but because they will teach us to apologize and to seek forgiveness. There's a helpful story a friend once told me, and I know that when people tell stories this way that it's usually them. This is, in fact, a friend of mine who told me this. Um, and I think this story ties, ties together the practice of therapy and confession beautifully. So he was sitting in front of a therapist talking about the difficulties of his childhood, and the therapist said to him, I would literally be out of business if parents learned to say two words. I'm sorry. I'm going to say that again because I need to hear it like twice a day. I would literally be out of business if parents learned to say two words. I'm sorry. I think about that story numerous times a week. 
and I do end up apologizing to our almost four-year-old. And I know it sounds silly to apologize to someone who does not know how to count successfully above the number 14 and who has a hard time picking out his own underwear, but it matters deeply to him that I say I'm sorry, and honestly, it brings me great comfort as well. All of this drives me to my second of three points, and that is, unfortunately, that my first point will not fix you. Despite all our best efforts, we will continue to make massive errors. Please go to therapy or confession or go to both. Pour your heart out. Ask forgiveness from your child, yourself, your spouse, your mom, your maker. And then please remember that these are not really fixes. They are simply ways to remind us that we are the walking redeemed, but we're the walking broken too. This isn't really slated off. This isn't really slated to go off without a hitch. We are we are humans raising humans. I have to say that again because I need to hear it. We are people raising people. This isn't really slated to go off without a hitch. So confession and therapy, while really valuable, will not fix your sinfulness. This is not heaven, and our therapists and pastors are not Jesus. So what therapy and confession will do is to help us contextualize our sin when it happens again. And of course, more sin will happen. And I believe, especially as parents, one of the greatest kindnesses we can do ourselves is to accept this really hard fact, despite what the world outside tells us. The world plays a cruel joke on us as moms and dads. There is so much information out there that claims that our lives can be perfect, that things can be fixed, that there is no pain and struggle in the work that we do. This false reality tells us we will always remember to count to ten before we yell, It tells us the lunches will always be made, and the papers will always be signed, and it's a great big fat lie. As parents, we are told it is our mission to have happy households. How terrible is that, by the way, that we use that word that way? I hate that. Um, Our mission. Um, So it's our mission to have perfect households where our kids always fall into line, and we always parent with ease. So we take to heart very seriously that off-handed remark the pediatrician makes about how little Johnny might calm down if you take him off the juice. No more juice for Johnny. This will help his hyperactivity, only the juice moratorium on Welch's doesn't serve anybody. Johnny continues to bounce off the walls, and there it is. Life is still messed up. We are messed up. Our kids are messed up, and it hits us again like the sign we refuse to see. All of this makes me think of signs, those signs we have in our houses. And if you guys have better decor in your house than I do, I don't want to hear about it. I have these signs. They're mostly in our kitchen. Um, Do you guys have these signs? So they say things like, live, laugh, love, or or faith, friends, family. Um, We have like a very hipster one that says, uh, we do fun, which... Like at five o'clock in the afternoon in the in the Condon household, when everybody is cranky, I look up at the sign that says "We do fun," and I'm like, "Is this what fun looks like? Because this is not fun." Um, and I buy that I buy these signs, uh, and I, I'm doing this solely for my husband because this drives him crazy, and he's here. I buy these signs at what I call the art section of Target. So we're like going through Target. I'm like, "Let's go to the art section." He's like, "Don't call it the art section." Um, so I want a real sign now, one that really speaks to who I am. Some days, uh, it's the next slide. Sometimes you will yell. The toddler will tell you he hates all of your cooking. 
Housewives of Atlanta is not okay for the kids to watch, even the baby, and probably not even me. Um, the laundry will never be completely done. Your husband will come home tired almost every day. It is unlikely that you will paint that dresser, kitchen table, or antique chair. Unanswered emails never killed anyone. You will not make it to that playgroup, but let's be honest, you probably don't want to go anyway. Um, so I've written this as a mom and from my perspective because that's the reality I know. If you're a dad, sorry honey, or if you're my husband, I feel like yours looks, it's very simple. I think it looks like this. In college, I could watch all the SEC football I wanted. This is not college. Um, but really, if I'm writing my own reality sign, it would simply say this. It's not, it's not the next one, but you can look at that. You may feel like a crummy parent, and you'd be right, and so is everyone else, but your story doesn't end there. In fact, that's exactly where your story begins. Better still, I'll give you the version Katarina von Bora Luther might have had in her home. Katarina was married to the Reformation theologian and pastor Martin Luther, and I like to imagine the sign in their house hanging over their kitchen table. It's from Luther's writing, The Bondage of the Will. Then, when a man becomes aware of the disease of sin, he is troubled, distressed, even in despair. The law is no help, much less can he help himself. There is need of another light to reveal the remedy. This is the voice of the gospel, revealing Christ as the deliverer from all these things. All of this brings me to my last point. We have to surrender our story to Jesus. We cannot live, laugh, love, or faith, friends, food our way into sanity. These sentiments will not make us better people, and they won't make us better parents. They will fail us and leave us empty. We can only fall to our knees and name Jesus as Lord. As parents, I believe we are driven to our knees early and often. For my husband and I, this was the first night that we brought our firstborn son home from the hospital. We had forgotten pants and a hat. We brought one of those sleep sacks. You can't put them in a car seat in a sleep sack. It was December in New York. So the nurses turned one of those shirts they get, they're there in the nurse, so a free shirt, the free shirt, into pants and gave us a free hat. And not the free hat they give everybody, but the free hat they give people who don't have hats for their babies. Um, like the churches make, we got one of those. Um, and it was humiliating. We called our son homeless baby for weeks. <laughs> I remember thinking as we were walking out of the hospital, and I was weeping because my parents weren't there, his parents weren't there. And I remember thinking, oh my God, truly I thought, oh my God, we are responsible for you for the rest of your life, and we have already made a huge mistake. <laughs> Let me say I am dumbfounded when I meet people who somehow raise children without knowing Jesus. And this is not a soapbox moment. I'm not fixated on where the unchurched are going to spend eternity. I feel like that's way down the road. I don't know how they make it through the next 20 minutes. I wouldn't make it because the weight of the law slays me. And I need a rescue plan. As parents, we will covet, steal, and at least contemplate murder. 
And what about all the little laws? What about the soccer field ethics? We will berate ourselves for being late to a pre-K t-ball game. We will judge that parent who brings snack cakes with high fructose corn syrup in them. Or we will shop at Walmart and have gotten those snack cakes with high fructose corn syrup in them. And the little laws of the world will tell us that all of this is incredibly important. And perhaps worst of all, this is worst of all, we will not own up to any of that anxiety and pressure because we are polite and we are energetic and we have it all under control. And that will be the little law that puts me in an early grave. The moment we accept reality, things actually get easier. Because when we are constantly surprised by our sinfulness, we waste precious time alone in a cycle of shame. Walking around in denial of ourselves and our sin keeps us from the only rest we are guaranteed, and that rest is in Jesus. Come unto me, Jesus tells us in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Dear people and parents of this room, come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. I strongly believe that we are not here to be on some sort of a moralistic journey where we, where we get better and better. I think we are peeling away parts of ourselves and discovering over and over again that God loves us anyway. So in terms of my spiritual progression as a parent, the only progress I've seen is that I've stopped being surprised by my sin and I've started to be surprised by Jesus. And that's the good news. It's not on us. It's not on us to fix ourselves and it's certainly not on us to fix our children. We will fail to meet the law, the big one and all the little ones the world creates. We cannot meet the standards of the world. We cannot meet the standards of the church. So throw in the towel and call a time out. Ask to take a knee and then take two. Being a parent is impossibly hard. And Jesus offers us shocking and saving grace. I want to end today talking a little bit about Robert Farrar Capon. Mockingbird used one of his quotes to frame the grace theme for this conference. Capon was an Episcopal priest, a theologian, a writer, a husband, and a father. He wrote a book called Between Noon and Three that is the weirdest thing you will ever read. If you don't take anything else away from my talk today, you should go and buy one of Capon's books. They are offensive and insightful in the best possible way. Caven was a dad to six kids, and while he didn't really seem to write a book officially about parenting, I think when you have six kids, it's sort of in all of your writing. It's sprinkled with these priceless parental anecdotes. Caven was married twice. Of his first marriage, which ended in divorce, but produced all six children, he wrote this. As it has turned out, there were a lot of departments in which I was not a success not to mention several in which I was, and still am, a failure. I dedicated a great deal of my time and effort to my children's religious formation, only to find them now mostly uninterested and non-practicing. 
I know this is a scary way to end and a scary thing to read to a room full of Christians, especially Christian parents. But we have almost no control over our children and their convictions any more than we can really control if they throw a fit in the grocery store or what they end up doing for a living. And I'm not about to offer you some sort of, but we can lead by example platitude, because I hate those platitudes. I think Capen points to a bigger truth about our efforts as parents. We don't tell our kids the story of Jesus with an agenda. We don't tell our kids the story of Jesus because it will somehow make them better citizens or because they will be better behaved. Or even, we don't tell our kids the story of Jesus because we think it will improve our relationship with God. All of this is full of our loaded, failed plans. We tell our kids the story of Jesus because we are in love with Jesus. And Jesus is in love with us. And because we need to hear that story on repeat. Because he took our sins to the cross Because we have spent time on a therapist's couch or in confession, and we know ourselves. We know the worst parts of ourselves, and God knows them too. And because we are dumbfounded and surprised that the Lord loves us anyway. Because there is nothing so relentless as being a parent. Kids are loud and smelly and entirely unpredictable. And some days it feels like we mess everything up. And some days we do. And the only rest we can be sure of is found on our knees, staring at a vertical wooden beam of the cross, saying, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to leave you with my favorite quote about parenting. It's also from Capen. For an entire year, I kept this gem over my desk at work. And in those moments when I thought I had done permanent damage as a parent, in those moments of deep parental despair when I failed to keep the laws of scripture and the little laws of life, I sat and I stared at this quote, and I rested in Jesus. Capen writes, It is my best hope that when my children think of everything I have said and done to them, they choose to remember the times of my severity when I just gave them a kiss on the cheek poured myself a scotch, and shut up. And it is my last hope that God hopes the same for himself. We serve a mercifully merciful God. Let us take rest in that. Thank you guys so much for coming today. Please pray for me as a parent as I pray for you.